This is episode 7 with Ross Reynolds. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface Podcast. There are many instances where asking great questions can make a big difference, including having better conversations, relationship building, sales prospecting, content creation, research studies, and hiring, among others. Also, by being more intentional about asking great questions, it forces you to become a better listener. Since to ask great questions, one must be a great listener. To learn more about asking great questions and interviewing, I met with Ross Reynolds, the executive producer and senior radio host at KUOWFM, one of the highest ranking NPR stations in the country. Ross is the recipient of multiple awards in the radio industry, and in 2015, he was inducted into the UW uh, Department of Communications Alumni Hall of Fame. In this episode, we discussed his early life and career highlights, the future of radio, the art of asking great questions, how to get people to open up, and more. Enjoy. And ladies and gentlemen, I am here with Ross Reynolds. Thank you so much for being here, Ross. Happy to be here. Before you know, we get started learning more about you, I, I wanted to kind of just, I, I like to do this in all my interviews, kind of do a quick recall of how we met and how we ended up um, learning about each other. Uh, and I think uh, it was when I was uh, going through my case of facing deportation, the, the DREAM Act was getting some force. And and I think, it, was it a one-on-one -on -one interview that you did with me or was there more people that I forgot? No, it was you and I, and we were talking about your case in particular, and your case was very interesting, and you made a compelling uh, argument for why you should uh, get citizenship. But what I really remember about the interview, Alonzo, was that you brought a camera, and you might have brought two cameras. <laughs> and it was the only uh, time that I ever interviewed someone who brought their own camera set up. I've done interviews before where there was a TV crew there, but you brought your own with you. So that that was interesting. Yeah, well, I was definitely trying to uh, continue keeping everyone, everybody who was supporting me uh, up to date. Otherwise, you know, they get sick of my story. Mm -hmm. If I don't bring new content, they they forget about you and you still need them to click for me. Who knows? Maybe the next petition because I remember back then it was one petition after the other and one deadline after the other. And it's a long story, but... I'm so glad it's worked out for you. I know. And here we are. <laughs> now you're interviewing me. I know. It's great. So... Uh, before I start digging in a little bit about you, I wanted to give you a heads up. I was uh, listening to the, your interview from, from chats with the chair uh, by the UW of Communications Department. Uh, I think David Domk interviewed you. Domke. Domke. So, you know, I, I was listening to some of the questions that he asked you, and I don't really want to ask you the same thing. So I'm going to be kind of expanding from that interview uh, as far as kind of your beginning. Um, so I, I know you grew up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, you said, and that you were a photograph editor of your high school yearbook. But in between then, what was your childhood like? Oh, I had a, I had a classic American childhood. Um, Norman Rockwell is a well-known American painter, and he paints these idealized views of what it was like to be a child and to grow up. 
they're very well known. And I happened to grow up in the same part of Massachusetts where Norman Rockwell did those paintings. So it was kind of a classic American upbringing. Uh, lots of kids on my street. Uh, we would play kick the can. We would go running in the woods behind us. It was very safe. And our parents gave us a lot of leeway. Which So it's interesting to hear so much these days about how parents are kind of parachute parents. They're always overseeing where their children go. We would Halloween is coming up. We would just go trick-or-treating as much as we wanted to. These days, kids don't go trick-or-treating without their parents with them. So it was kind of an ideal childhood. What about uh, as far as like what did you want it to be when, like, when you were a kid and who influenced you growing up? When I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor. I thought it would be really terrific to be an actor. In fact, in my neighborhood, I would organize these little street lamp They weren't even plays. They weren't written or anything. But I would get a bunch of kids and I would say, you're going to be the robber and you're going to be the person who's robbed. And we would do little skits like under the streetlights at night. And it was just, just for my amusement. Uh, what about who influenced you most growing up? My father. Your father? Yeah. I didn't realize it at the time. Sometimes we have belated recognition of, of how our parents influence us, both my father and my mother. Um, my father was an insurance agent and um, really was an interesting guy. He was working with the business people in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, but he always, uh, he would kind of scorn pretension. So people who went to the country club, which was the fancy golf course, he would kind of make fun of that. And he was completely honest and straight and, and, and really worked really hard. So that influenced me quite a bit. And my mother was sort of the heart of the family. I can remember coming home from college and when she saw me walk in the door, just her face would light up with this joy. And she was kind of the, the, the heart and love of the family. And I was very influenced by that. Uh, and other than the, the parents, was there anybody else, perhaps outside of the family, whether it's somebody in the media or somebody well-known at the time that you look up to? There was a social studies teacher who influenced me a lot. I, he was actually, I had ran into some issues as a young man in high school um, regarding a woman, regarding an unwanted pregnancy. And he actually, I, it was something I didn't feel comfortable talking to my parents about, but I felt comfortable talking to him about, even though he just, I just sensed that he was someone who I could open up to in ways I couldn't with my parents. And that was really terrific. That may be, it was the source of all my interest in news, which came later. Oh, wow. Now, uh, I know that then later on in college, you volunteer at a radio station yes. doing a morning music show. Yes. How did that happen? Like, what got your attention to do it? I had just finished uh, a junior year abroad. I'd spent some time in Denmark, and I traveled in South America. And when I got back, my uh, college had this radio station. It was brand new, and I thought, wow, this is terrific. I used to love listening to radio as a kid, and I thought, I just really want to be a DJ. And this was a time in the early 70s when there was a great foment. There was a lot of terrific music coming out. And me and my college friends were very much into music. So I thought, oh, that'd be a lot of fun. Instead of just playing a record for my friends in, in the dorm room, I could play it for a whole bunch of people. And it so happened that summer was rolling around, so a lot of students were going away. So I said, I'd like to do a show. And they said, how'd you like to do five shows? So I did this morning show called The Alternative Alarm Clock. And I would get <laughs> a great up, name. <laughs> get up before dawn and uh, go into the station and just get to play the records that I loved and put them together in a freeform way that I like to do. Did you, did you talk in between the records or you were sure. just literally play, just playing? No, I would, I, would, I would play the records and I would talk in between them. I would talk about why I like this piece of music. I actually have some old cassettes of those broadcasts the first time I was ever on the radio. And uh, listening to them is a little embarrassing now because I don't like the way I come across. 
Yeah. So that was your first time on air. Yeah. What, what was it like? The it was, first time, like first, first time. It was totally exciting. I mean, the <laughs> idea that I had a microphone and I don't know how many listeners there were. It was early in the morning. We were a brand new college radio station. I suspect not many, but this, just the idea that I had this forum and I could speak to people was tremendously exciting. And I was genuinely excited about the music. So the idea that I'm going to play you something that I really like and I'll tell you why I really like it and hopefully you'll really like it too. That's, that's great. And then I, I know after that, you after college, you try a couple of jobs, mm -hmm. one as a import-export correspondent for a turbines company, and then later on uh, try selling high-five equipment. Yes. And those two didn't work out. But through this time, you kept volunteering at this radio station in college. So I was curious, you know, it, was that just pure fun for you or were you expecting something from your time volunteering there? Pure fun. I mean, I just enjoyed doing it a lot. It was it was terrific. It was fun to have a radio show, uh, get a little bit of recognition for it. I never really thought of it as a job until I got fired from my second job. And then I realized, well, what do I really want to do? I got in these jobs, but they were just job jobs. They were just jobs I was doing to make some money. What did I really enjoy doing? And I realized, well, I really enjoy working at the radio station. But I was realistic to know that we had a lot of volunteer DJs. There was not a big budget. I realized I could probably never get a job being a DJ. Mm. So I just went to the managers and I said, is there something I could do here to get some work? And they suggested to me that I write a grant proposal to do a public affairs show. And so I did it. And we didn't get the grant, but apparently they liked the fact that I had offered to do that. So they decided that they wanted to do more than just music. They had high aspirations for this college radio station. Hmm. A lot of college radio stations just want to have college students doing being DJs, but they wanted more. And they I don't know why they trusted me. That must have had some seriousness about wanting to do it. So they said, okay, we'll make you the public affairs director. So I was the public affairs director and I had to begin to come up with radio programs and it was very much learning on the fly. You have no precedent. I had no precedent. I had no any education in it. I knew a little bit about recording equipment. So I just began to fumble around and figure out how to do it and recruit other people. There were other people at the radio station that wanted to not just do DJ stuff. They wanted to go and record things in the community. I began to go to the Worcester City Council. We broadcast the Worcester City Council live. So I would sit there and be the announcer for that. I would announce it at the beginning. If there was a break in the middle of the sessions that took place, I would grab a microphone and go buttonhole a city council member or a member of the audience and talk to them to kind of fill the time in the middle. So I got a great chance to experiment with live radio very early in my career. And all, all, was this, all these tactics were driven for you as far as going to the council because did you have any direction from anybody as far as how to start? Not really. I mean, not not, not an awful lot. I mean, I just, I, I think it was suggested to me that we, we start broadcasting the council meeting. So I just did it and kind of made it my own. I, re I do remember that once I did a documentary, a produced piece that I really liked a lot, and I wanted to put it in for an award. So I gave it to our station manager who had more experience in radio than I did. And he gave me back a two-page list of all the things that were wrong with it. And it was very humbling. But so I realized I had a long way to go. Now, and then when you were uh, doing the public affairs show, yeah. it, was, that, was that the only thing you were doing or you still were doing side jobs? No, I was still, that was my complete job. In fact, oh, I was great. completely obsessed by it. And around the same time, there was um, an economic recession and there was a program called the Comprehensive Employment Training Act. And it was a federal program that gave money to nonprofit organizations to do training to get people into things. So we went from a staff of three to a staff of about 15 and then back to a staff of three about a year later. But in that in-between period, we had 
many people, including my the woman who later became my wife, come to the station and set up training programs. Wow. And I was I was the public affairs director, and I would work together with our news director, and we would train people. Here's how to do an audio edit. Here's how to write a lead. Here's how to do a news story. Although I just learned it myself. And you created your own opportunity. It just it <laughs> this is just awesome. happened. Yeah, it was. I felt feel so fortunate because over the years since then, I've come across so many brilliant young people who come would come to the radio station and say, how can I get involved? And we might have one little thing for them to do. And here I walked in and they said, you're the public affairs director. It was really great. So I seized the opportunity and ran with it. And that experience drove you to going to KBOO or KBO radio from in Portland? Yes. that from I, I was working full-time in Worcester, Massachusetts at WCUW. Uh, we had a, a community radio conference. We were a community radio station. We weren't like a public radio station like KUOW. We were largely volunteer staffed. And there was a, a national conference which took place in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I was talking to some people from Portland. They mentioned, oh, we've got a news opening. And I th thought, well, that's something that I'd be interested in. So I applied for the job. I had no idea what my chances were. I just happened to be on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And this was before cell phone days. We did the interview in the lobby of the little hotel I was at. I was just talking to the committee in the middle of the lobby. And then a day or so later, I got a message from them that they wanted to talk to me again. So I called them up and I was in a telephone group booth looking at the Atlantic Ocean. And they said, we have a job for you in Portland. So I was going to be moving all the way across the country. It was kind of a big moment in my career. Wow. And, and, and Cable is definitely a more established a radio station when compared to the, the college yes. one. Yes, it was quite a bit advanced from the college station. Yeah, and then w what I was curious about is then after Portland, you ended up on KUOW yes. Seattle, and that's where you've stayed the longest. Mm -hmm. What did they, what did Cable Radio miss to, to keep you with them? Cable? Cable. Yeah, uh, well, I, again, it was I got these opportunities to do things I would have never gotten elsewhere. KBU also wanted to build up their public affairs programming. So I said, all right, we're going to do a, a daily show. It's going to be two hours long. I'm going to call it Radio Zine, like a magazine. Mm -hmm. And I'll do one of them, and you'll do this one, and you'll do this one. So I organized this whole public affairs strip at the station. Also, community radio stations were kind of designed and set up to provide people who would not ordinarily get a chance to be on the media to actually have their own radio show. That was our goal was kind of giving the means of production to people who don't ordinarily get to be on the radio. Because if you don't own a lot of, have a lot of money and own a radio station, or it's sometimes hard to get access to the airwaves. So that was our goal. So I would train people in how to do radio broadcasting. So we had, we happened to have a program for gay women on the air. I recruited a bunch of gay men and talked with them about how they should do a radio show. We had a, we decided we really wanted to do a show for people with disabilities. So I recruited a bunch of people with disabilities and trained them in how to do a radio show, trying to empower them to have their own voice on the radio rather than having other people speak for them. So that was the most of my most of my work was that also training reporters, training people in how to do interviews, mm -hmm. just kind of keeping the whole ball rolling. It was me and about 25 volunteers, so it was a lot of maintenance to kind of just keep the thing going. Got it. So so then KUOW was just a normal step for you because it was a bigger opportunity. It was a bigger opportunity, and it's, it was a different kind of radio station. As a community radio station in Portland at KBU, our doors were open. Anybody could come and learn how to do radio and have a chance to have a radio show. Mm -hmm. uh, 
when I got to up to Seattle and I began to work there, this was more of an established public radio station. I actually had a staff. I was the news director and I had reporters. I had, I had air hosts who reported to me. So rather than re- relying on a volunteer to come once a week to do something, I had people who actually worked for me, which was a huge boon. You can get volunteers to do so much, but at the end of the day, it's great to have people who work for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. And then... You have a long career to cover all in this interview, but something that I was very curious about is which would you say were the most exciting moments, your career highlights, if you say so? Oh, um, I would say definitely the World Trade Organization demonstrations, which took place here in November of 1999. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all knew this was going to be a giant event. There were a number of activist groups locally who were practicing what they were going to do to try to disrupt it, and we covered it extensively. We talked about... It was a great chance for people in Seattle to think internationally, many of them for the first time. We're a a city that is connected to the world by trade. We're very trade dependent, and as many as one in four jobs here rely on trade. So we're connected to the world at large. And if, if this was a moment in history where people, as they are today, were beginning to challenge the notion that free trade works for everyone. And groups came to Seattle based on the environment. Labor had a huge, uh, group that came here to try to not necessarily protest the WTO, but make it known that there are labor interests. So the coverage of that, this was a giant story at the time in 1999, because what happened was the demonstrators took over the streets of Seattle and shut down this international conference and made it impossible for the president to get here. It was a giant, it was a huge international story that took place. And here were a little public radio station, and we didn't have a lot of reporters at the time, but we had a a really dedicated volunteer staff. And we drilled and we work and we prepared. And when it hit, we were ready. We were just ready. We had our reporters out everywhere on the streets. And I was talking to the people, talking to people in the middle of the demonstrations, reporters calling me up on their cell phones. This was the first, some of the first old cell phones saying, I'm here on the street and they say they're going to arrest me if I don't move along. What should I do? Or reporters reporting live on the street and saying, and starting to cough and saying the tear gas is getting too much. I'm going to have to move to another place. So it was incredibly exciting and dynamic. And I was so proud of these people, some of whom were volunteers who were just dedicated to being reporters. But an awesome opportunity. (laughs) And and I, I thought our coverage was incredible. We also won a national headliner award which was a little unusual for breaking news. And I, mm-hmm. actually a, a capsule recording of that ended up at the Museum of History and Industry in an exhibit they had about the WTO, the battle in Seattle, as it was called. There was a part of the exhibit was this 20-minute capsulization of our coverage that took place over those four days. Now, and, and, and I know that then later on during your time in, during your time in KUOW at some point, you... Uh, you were started getting a little frustrated about the where K, how KOW was not paving its way into the new digital world. Is that a, what got you to take the MBA, uh, evening MBA program on digital yes. media? Yes, I had been the the program director at the radio station, and at the time we were kind of a traditional public radio station. We did news and classical music, but I kind of realized that those two audiences in some ways compete with one another. The classical audience isn't satisfied because you don't give them classical all the time. And the news audience might not care that much about classical. So you have a hard time achieving your full potential as a radio station. So as program director, I, I changed that. I made the switch and made us all a news talk station. I added the BBC World Service. I added national public radio programs. And it was really a, an important 
point in the history of the radio station. Up until that point, we and what was then KPLU were basically neck and neck in competing. In fact, they were a little bit ahead of us. But as soon as we committed to this news and talk format, over the years, we began to pull far ahead of them, became the most listened to public radio station by far. So after I'd done that for a while, I realized that I wasn't, I didn't really like managing people that much. I mean, I, I think I was okay at it, but I wasn't great at it. And I realized I wanted to do kind of more of my own thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I voluntarily stepped down from that position and I was, I was a reporter. I was working for someone who used to work for me, mm-hmm. who became the news director. And I really enjoyed reporting for a while. And then I got the opportunity to do a talk show. This was in 2000. And I started doing the conversation, which mm-hmm. you were on, which had a 13-year run. But in the course of doing that talk show, you'd have to be blind in the, in the aughts not to see that the internet was coming on. I remember distinctly that a local company called Real Networks was bringing audio to the web. You could listen to things on the web. It was more than just looking at stuff. And uh, I was so excited about, oh, wow, we could do radio online, all these other things that we could do. Mm-hmm. So with the this was way before many people were paying attention to it. But I and the, our station engineer at the time, Terry Denbrook, I said... I was the program director, so I could just do this. I said, let's do a website. So we set up a very rudimentary website. You can find it in the, in the Wayback Machine on, on the internet and see what a rudimentary website KUOW had. But as time went on and I was hosting this radio program, I felt as though we were falling way behind when it came to digital. Other stations were really pushing themselves forward. And in fact, rather than just being a radio program director, they, the head of the organizations became the content director. They were looking not just at what, what you put on the radio, but what you could put online. And I felt as though we were really behind in that area. And I was very frustrated. At one point, I said, we should do, um, we should do a blog, a news blog of some kind. But that suggestion was turned down. So I felt very frustrated professionally. And uh, as, as a in an odd coincidence, Hanson Hossein, who was someone who I'd interviewed in the past, a filmmaker, had become head of the Masters of Communications and Digital Media program. So I, I met him again when he moved to Seattle a couple of years after I'd interviewed him. And he is quite a visionary when it comes to, to digital media and the changes that are happening in the digital world. And uh, I asked him a little bit about the program and kind of got inspired to want to do it. So I thought, if I can't get this stuff done at work, at least I can learn about it. And so I got into the Masters of Communication and Digital Media program. And when you got in that program, I know you made a comment that you, you took a class on law. Yeah. Wait, what, why did you take that class for? It was it was one of, just to check a box. Oh. <laughs> but then when I took it, uh, the, the, Kurt, uh, the guy who did the class was just amazing. He would... I, I mean, I'm all about digital and fast moving and a lot of the classes, they would show you a PowerPoint and they would cut, try to keep it very interactive. He basically stood there for two hours and lectured, but he was such a good lecturer and so interesting to listen to. I was really impressed by him as a person and I just learned so much about the law and media and weird quirks in digital law that are not the same for broadcasting. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm interviewing you on the radio and you defame someone, we as the radio station are responsible but if in this podcast I defame someone and it goes up onto a service that's distributing this podcast, that service is not responsible. You might be responsible. Oh, wow. So I, these little quirks in the law I just found fascinating. And uh, it was just a great class. It makes me wonder. It's a side comment, but I wonder how all these conspiracy theory radios <laughs> get away with all this stuff anyways. Uh, any idea how many interviews you've done so far? 
What about my interviews? Do you have any idea of how many interviews? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. Well, I did 13 years, five days a week, at least three interviews a day. Uh, you can do the math. I've done a lot of interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Then you hosted the conversation and Upon Reflection. They're both award-winning uh, programs. One is a, was a, a radio news talk, and the other one was a TV interview program. What would you? What do you think made them stand out? I'd like to think that, um, as an interviewer, I'm one who tries to extract from the person I'm speaking to what their core experiences are and when why they think the way that they think. Some interviewers want to be as much of the conversation as the interviewee, and I feel as though I kind of lean back a little bit. So I don't think I'm a flashy interviewer, but I think I'm really good at bringing things out from guests who are on the air. And I also, as uh, I think I'm very good at working with people who maybe have never been interviewed before and making them comfortable and being on the radio and just little tricks to get them to sit down and open themselves up. And a lot of what I did on the radio program, the conversation was talking to callers who were just calling in. And I would, people would kind of make fun of me sometimes. They would say, you were so understanding of that person. Why were you so understanding, thinking that I should just cut them off? But I really made an effort to listen to people, even if they sounded a little off track, to mm -hmm. try to bore in and find out what it was that they had to say. And as, as infrequently as possible, using my power as a radio host to just press a button and cut them off. <laughs> I tried to not do that much at all. I tried to kind of steer them back or at least let them feel as though they had been heard. I know you have a friend copy. You said you have a friend copy of the last cover of the Seattle PI. Yes. Why did you do that? What's the significance to you? Well, to remind me of the fact that legacy media is, uh, has, is very threatened at the moment. It's threatened by competitors, by good competitors. It's threatened by podcasts. Uh, for, and when you come to public radio, some of the best and the brightest people in radio are going and starting their own podcast companies because they see an upside to it. Uh, there, there are oftentimes fewer reasons to want to listen to the radio than before because there's so many things competing for, for our listening time. So in that world, we, public radio as a legacy media has to evolve. I don't want to become the PI. I want KUOW to main, be strong and maintain its listenership and figure out ways to connect to people. So it's really important that we evolve, and this kind of relates back to wanting to learn about digital media because clearly there's a whole lot that's going on in the digital world. We have to be able to serve the audience where they are. And mm -hmm. often they're on their phone or they're on their computer. We need to be effective at serving them in those places. And my job now is a bit different. It's, it's off, off air, offline, in the community, meeting with people and talking to people. And this is called community engagement in our situation. So it's really important that public radio not just stick to doing radio only, although that's our, still going to be our main way of transforming things, but to figure out, evolve a new way to be able to reach out to people and connect to them. We, I think we have a strong, trusted brand, if you want to call it. People kind of tend to believe in public radio. <laughs> they send us money. They don't have to. They send us money because they believe in what we do. So we need to be able to use that trust in other areas, on the web, in the community. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to transition into the skills that you've developed over time in your career and learn more about this, the tactics and strategies that perhaps other people can use in different fields because I think there is just so much to gain from what you're really good at. Uh, and the first question that I have was, how do you plan and prepare for your, for your interviews? Well, I first try to locate what's, what's my interest in this interview. And if I don't have a huge interest in it, if you're doing a daily show, sometimes you're not passionate about every interview. 
what would someone else's interest in this be? I try to imagine what that would be. So I try to come up with the core the core things that I want to address in the interview. Then I try to structure the interview. Uh, how much am I going to say before we hear from the guest? And where do I want to begin the interview? What are the things I want to get out on the table, first of all? And then what's the journey that I want the interview to take? What Do I want it to reach a climax? Do I want to get to a certain point and have that be the kind of question that's going to click? And then how do I want the interview to end? So what's the topography of the interview? Where are, how do I want it to play out over the course of time? And then it's just a matter of writing the questions and very carefully writing the questions because I'm a firm believer in who, what, when, where, how, why. I mm-hmm. mean, you stick to the basics and you can't go wrong in a question. If you um, ask what I call Chinese menu questions, did you do this because of this or because of that or because of that? You're really, in effect, answering the question for them and giving them three options to pick from. They're going to pick the one that they most want to answer as opposed to the other two, which mm-hmm. may have been your real question. You blew it because you didn't ask a straightforward question. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of getting back to basics for me in terms of being a good interviewer. Uh, do you ever write read scripts during your program? I mean, I don't know. I, I know you don't write them during your program, but do you write pre your program and then read them? Or is it all? Just- I occasionally, if, if there's uh, often on political issues when the wording is very important, I will often read a, a question verbatim. But just before I do an interview, I try to be very familiar with the material so I don't have to actually look at the page that much. I can I know generally where I'm going. Mm. But I will definitely, particularly when I'm doing a recorded interview, since there's no pressure on, you can just I just I'll let it I'll let there be a pause. I'll just look down the page and let a moment go by and then mm-hmm. find out where I want to go next. It's important not to rush things too much because sometimes an answer contains a great possibility for a follow-up question. If you're following your script too closely, you're going to miss that. Uh, when, when you were asked about what caught your attention about doing radio, you said that you like talking to people, meaning people who are smart or are subject matter ex- experts, and trying to draw out their story. Mm-hmm. In all these years interviewing people, what would you think is your best about your best advice to get people to open up with you so that you can draw their draw out their stories? I alluded to a little bit earlier. I mean, there's one just mechanical thing, and that's just keeping the questions as simple as possible, not necessarily inserting yourself in as much. When you ask someone why or who or what or where, it's very straightforward, and there's not any way to kind of avoid it. So mm-hmm. I think that naturally draws people out if you keep that way. Um, just simple things like making them feel comfortable before they start, uh, trying to maintain eye contact that, with them as much as possible to make them know that you're there. Uh, sometimes you need to share something to get something. I mean, maybe there's something in your life that that connects to what it is that they're talking about. So you might say, well, this thing happened to me. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Or does something happen to you like that that led you to this? So getting them to tell a personal story. Mm-hmm. And anytime you can get someone in the moment, I remember one of my um, favorite interviews had to do with a, a guy who had been through the earthquake in Haiti. And he, it, this was not that long afterwards, but he came in and my questions were utterly simple. It was like, what happened? What mm-hmm. happened next? What happened after that? This is also Ira Glass advice. He has a whole uh, YouTube video about it. And as he began to tell the story, he wasn't looking at me and he was, and I could see in his mind's eye, he was there in Haiti 
in Port-au-Prince and the earthquake was happening and he didn't know where his wife was and the, the casualties were coming in. And he was kind of living the moment as he was telling it, which to me is just one of the best things you can get. He's telling a story. He's not giving an opinion. He's telling you what actually happened from his point of view. And it was, as we referred to a little bit earlier, it was kind of cinematic. He was like describing a whole scene for you that was utterly absorbing and allowed you to share his experience. You, you said that people who have experience at being interviewed are the hardest to interview mm -hmm. because they tend to have a lot of pre-programmed and automated answers for everything. And with these people, the challenge is not getting them to talk, but to get them to stop and think for a moment. Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples of how you've been able to do that in the past? Well, I think a lot of times, particularly people with particular political viewpoints, you get a really interesting answer if they explain what they believe, but then you try to drill a little bit deeper and say, well, why do you think that? Did something happen in your life that made you think that? You advocate for this cause. Is there some personal reason beyond all the other reasons you've given? And that gets them to a deeper level because we have views and opinions and causes that are important to us, but they don't start there. They start with something that happened to us, and that led us to that cause, that led us to that belief. And if you can get down to that level, it just gets a lot more real and less abstract. It's not merely an idea about, about them, but you find out how they got to that idea, and you might be able, you might disagree with the idea, but you can connect with the experience they had that led them to the idea. You, you talked about your uh, one of your best interviews, favorite interviews. What about... Who has been the worst interview you ever had and why? Uh, there was a rock musician named Jonathan Richman, and I was a huge fan of his, and he came to the station. I was terrifically excited. I just loved his music a lot. But I uh, began the interview by playing an old song of his called Roadrunner, which was one of my favorite songs. He was clearly displeased <laughs> that I was playing that song. And uh, because he was, a, as an artist, he was someone who evolved, and he obviously thought that didn't represent him at all. And he didn't like the song for whatever reason. So the whole interview, he was kind of, we were at a, at a tall table and I was sitting at a tall stool and he was standing there and he just, I would ask a question. He would say, no, I don't want to answer that. I don't want to ask another question. <laughs> and basically kind of blew me off Straight for up. like almost the whole interview. That was one of my least favorite interviews. Um, another was with a, uh, a former uh, corporal in the military who uh, wrote a book. And in the book, he talked about how he'd run his Uh, camp in Vietnam quite differently than others. He was tolerant of drug of marijuana use, not heart drug use, and he allowed um, some of his soldiers to consort with prostitutes. And when I began to ask him about that section of the book, he just stared at me and, and kind of denied that he'd done that and, and got very angry. And uh, I, I didn't really understand why. And uh, I said, look, this is in the press material that you sent me, and I, I may show it to you. And I turned around to walk out of the room. And in the meantime, his press person who was with him had come into the room to try to calm him down. And as I'm walking out of the room, I hear him saying to her, I'm going to clock that guy, meaning I'm going to punch that guy. <laughs> so I let them stay there for a while. And I came in a little bit afterwards, to, but obviously it was nothing that was going to be repaired. I don't know. I, I really never figured out what went wrong with that interview. <laughs> oh my God. But I did figure out what went wrong with the, for, for the first interview. And I kind of, I think I might've learned an important lesson from it. If you're going to play something to introduce an artist to mm -hmm. someone, you might want to know that they think that that's a good idea too. I mean, you might want to, you might say, you know, Jonathan, 
in this case, Jonathan Richmond. I'm thinking about playing Roadrunner to go into this, just to gauge his reaction. And then I would have he would have said, no, that doesn't represent what I do at all. Because that did him off. Yes, exactly. It got off on the wrong foot. Mm. And many things we do as interviewers inadvertently turn the interview against us because we, we use a phrase or a word or play the wrong song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just gets the interview off on the wrong foot. And it's hard to kind of claw back from that. Mm. An interview is a, you're in a position of trust. You need to trust the person you're talking to. Correct. And you can destroy that trust if you show display ignorance in the way you ask a question or uh, in being lack of consideration in the song you choose to play. Hmm. Three people that you would like to interview that you haven't been able to yet. I kind of like to interview Bill Gates. I think he'd be a tough interview because he's been interviewed a lot. But as someone who casts such a, a big shadow over, particularly here in, in Western Massachusetts, I, I would be really interested in talking to him. Um, I'm a big fan of, of novelists, and I really enjoy talking to novelists. And I've got the chance to talk to a lot of people who I really admire greatly. Um, I don't know, there's, there's so many people locally and nationally I'd like to talk to. Politicians, not generally, because politicians are tough interviews. But people who have a, a new idea, uh, cognitive scientists, I've done interviews with David Eagleman and uh, Shira Turo, who are both cognitive scientists, because they're getting into the way our minds work and explaining things about ourselves that we don't even understand from brain mm-hmm. science. And I think those kind of interviews really interest me. The next interview I'm doing <clears throat> a week from today is is with a woman called Sherry Turkle. And she's written a book about conversation in the digital age. Hmm. And the thesis of the book is that we don't talk anymore. You and I are sitting and looking at each other's eyes and we're speaking to each other. She says we're spending so much time on our devices that we're not talking. And she sees this as a big loss. And she kind of traces the kind of political polarization we have today to that. We're like segregating ourselves. So I'm really interested and excited to be talking to her again. I've interviewed her about previous books because it's a topic I'm really passionate about. And I think she's got some insight into it. Now, I have a couple of wrap-up questions. Sure. Uh, One of them is, uh, what's the biggest mistake you ever made? Uh, The biggest mistake I ever made? I think it was, I would say I was, when I was uh, on my Uh, junior year abroad, I was uh, in South America with a group of Danish people, and uh, we were traveling around, and uh, there was a certain discipline within our group, and one member of our group, who was a friend of mine, had violated the tr- the trust in the group, and he got called out. We had a meeting, and people were kind of really giving him a hard time, and in my mind, it was like, this is just nonsense. This is, they're just, they're, this is bullshit that they're criticizing him in this way. But I didn't really speak up. And it's something that I go back to a lot. It was like I realized I knew something wrong was happening and I didn't say anything and I didn't do anything. And afterwards, when I talked to my friend, he was obviously very hurt that I hadn't. I didn't didn't think it mattered to him Mm -hmm. because he was a devil-may-care guy, but it obviously did matter to him. But what mattered even more is that me, someone who he trusted and was his friend, didn't stick up to him. And Hmm. that made me, that that felt like a real grave mistake that I made in my life. What is something that most people don't know about you? I was a nude model when I was <laughs> in my 20s. I, when I came back from my, my trip to Denmark, I was short for money. So I w- went to the Seattle Art Museum, the excuse me, the Worcester Art Museum at the time and took off my clothes and posed for an hour or so every day. Oh, wow. It paid really well at the time. <laughs> it, was like, it was $9 an hour, which back in the early 70s was like a lot of money. Just nude or is that like one of those like where they put... Just nude. Oh, wow. 
because I, I I remember one time I I think I was at the UW they had some nude models but mm-hmm. they they had food and paint so it was more like an art exhibit. Uh-huh. It was interesting. That, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, I just <laughs> sat there surrounded <laughs> surrounded by painters painting me. And I don't know what happened to all those paintings, but hopefully they're burned and safely were disposed you, were of. Were you nervous the first time you did that? Or? No, it was funny when I was in Denmark that the Danes have a very kind oh, of more open. F- open. And I remember the first time we went to the beach, they all just took off all their clothes and ran in. Or we would go to the sauna and people took all their clothes off. It was just natural. So that was my mindset coming back from Denmark. So I thought, this will be easy. I wasn't nervous about it at all. So you got comfortable about being nude in Denmark, but then you did it here in the U.S. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) Uh, Do you have uh, any daily tools, rituals to help you conquer the day? And if yes, would you mind walking me through, through it in detail from the time you wake up to when you go to bed? Well, I, I wake up at the same time every day. I exercise first thing. What time is that? That I get up at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. I go exercise for a half an hour. I either do weights or I, I, I'm mm-hmm. on the stair stepper machine. That's because if I think about it too much, I'll never exercise. Yeah. So I do that every day as a ritual. I eat breakfast. And then from when I get to work, I spend most of the first part of my day, if I don't have a meeting, basically studying what's going on in the world, going to about... 50 different news sources, mm-hmm. everything from the Seattle Times to the Guardian to blogs. Mm-hmm. And I go and check them all out and I read them all and I see what to find out what's going on. And if mm-hmm. I find something interesting that I think we should be doing something on, I make a note of it. Mm-hmm. So that's one of my rituals. Also, midday, particularly now that it's not raining horribly every day, mm-hmm. I try to get out and do a short walk just to mm-hmm. kind of clear my head and get out of the office. Mm-hmm. And I also try to, uh, as a point of interest, try to have lunch with people. We were talking earlier about how you at one time and maybe still do go have coffee with people five days a week. Mm-hmm. I've realized I'd, I'd try to do that. I need to do more of that. Just get out of the office and with someone that you kind of like talking to and have that conversation, yeah. that kind of freewheeling conversation where all kinds of things will come up. That's great. And then um, any, what about any rituals like late evening? Do you? I, I'm early I, to bed and early to rise. I go try to go to bed by uh, 9.30 or 10 o'clock like clockwork every night and I don't in the evening I'll, I'll read or I'll watch a movie I do mm-hmm. a bunch of different things or go out to a play or do something like that nice I know you're a big fan of Tim Egan's book The Good Rain yes you mentioned before in a, another interview but other than that uh, are there is there another book topping your list of all time favorites and mm-hmm. why um, let's see Norman Mailer wrote a book about the 1968 Democratic Convention, um, uh, Armies of the Night. And basically, he was a, both a novelist, a great novelist, and a journalist. And he this, it was groundbreaking at the time because he kind of fused the two together. He wrote about the dramatic events of the convention. This, this was the 68 Democratic Convention where there were riots in the street and the Republican Convention. And he wrote about them in this kind of really amazing way. And it kind of I, 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 it still stands out for me that book that he wrote and I mean I get much more of my inspiration these days from radio from radio mm-hmm. podcasts like Serial which was such an amazing journalistic feat and also such an amazing radio presentation and then every week from Ira Glass listening to his show we were just mm-hmm. talking about the latest yeah. show and I've, I'm halfway through it when we, <laughs> I leave here I'm going to listen to the last half on the way home Maybe this will be a better question. Other than the This American Life podcast uh, what are another two favorite podcasts that you listen to or 
a reveal is kind of an investigative reporting podcast. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. And I really like um, the startup podcast. They're on hiatus right now. Mm-hmm. Invisibilia is another podcast that I really enjoy a lot. Three words that best describe you. Uh, three words. Well, I'm a Libra, so that's Libra. And what that implies is kind of I try to keep balance in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so balanced. Balanced. I like to think that um, sense of humor is three words, but I like to think that I have a, I can, I don't ser- treat everything seriously. It would be mm-hmm. a second one. Um, commitment. I, I'm deeply committed to what I do in public radio. I think it's really important work. And although it faces many challenges, I just, and I've always felt that about my career in community radio forward. We just need strong media to represent viewpoints that aren't held, heard elsewhere. And mm-hmm. we need a fair open-minded media system in order to move ahead as a democracy. I just think the work I get the privilege to do is just so important and I'm privileged to be able to do it. Now, the final question is to give the everybody who is going to listen to this episode an uh, opportunity to to contribute to Ross. And so one of the things that I wanted to know is what's the, la- the latest thing you're working on and how can those listening to this podcast do to support you? There is a project I'm working on right now. It's called the Ask a Series. We've done two of these at KUOW. I mentioned I'm doing community engagement. Mm-hmm. And the idea here relates to something we talked about earlier. We don't have conversations anymore. Mm-hmm. And this basically sets up conversations. We've done two of them called Ask a Muslim. And it was shortly after Donald Trump announced he wasn't going to allow Muslims in the country. And I got to thinking, I don't know that many Muslims. I know Amina, who sits next to me, but I don't know very many And I would guess that a lot of Americans don't just because there are so few. So we set up the Ask a Muslim. We had a dozen Muslims talking to a dozen non-Muslims. And it was a kind of a speed dating format. So you sat across from someone, talked to them for six minutes, a bell rang, and then you moved on to the next thing. And uh, we did two of them. And I was very excited and interested in, in seeing them work. So I guess if someone wanted to help support what I was doing, mm-hmm. if this idea intrigues them about bringing back conversation particularly conversation with someone we might consider to be the other, someone we don't know much about, but we're curious about. Maybe we're a little bit suspicious of, but we're willing to give them a chance to talk to us or to ask. we want to ask them questions. If they like this idea, they should please get in touch with me because I'm gathering a list of people who might want to either participate as someone who is asked or someone who asks. Mm-hmm. So some of the topics I'm th- we're thinking about doing for the future might be ask a transgender person. Mm-hmm. Ask a police officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, ask a Republican. I don't know if we'll do that one or not. But ask people who you don't really know that much about. And if, if they are intrigued with this idea, I'd love if they got in touch with me. It's rar at org, And we'll make a note of your interest and let you know as these events evolve. We hope to have many more of them. So they'll basically sign up to get a whole bunch of questions from people. And they have to feed that stereotype of uh, not a stereotype that persona that you were mentioning yeah if they, if they if they are so curious if, I'm a Republican, if, if, um, like, if they'd like to have a conversation with someone who's not like them oh got it so they will be the one yeah. got it get in touch with me you will be and you will be the person who is going to be in that conversation maybe you'd like to ask a Muslim maybe you don't know any Muslims maybe you if you if you could imagine one of these that would be useful to you is mm-hmm. there some group of others that you you're very curious about but you don't have anyone in your daily life you can ask about 
We could set this up for you. We can make this happen for you. We can, Interesting. We can set up a situation where you'll be able to talk to not one, but maybe a dozen people from that group, and you're going to find out all kinds of things about them, how they're the same, how they're different. All Muslims are not the same. Hello. Surprise. Yeah. And so you're going to learn about them. And also you're going to get a chance to have a conversation. Great. You're not just going to be listening to something or watching something or looking at something on your phone. You're going to get, get to have a genuine conversation. So I'd love to have people who are interested in participating in that. Maybe you've got an idea for an ask a session that you'd love to be part of. Let me know. So you're like a matchmaker of all the players. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I'm a, I'm a matchmaker. <laughs> and, uh, and then the best way to, to submit to these type of conversations is, is it through a website or contact you directly just via contact email? me directly and I'm collecting names and addresses and this is evolving now so we don't know what the next one will be and we're looking for suggestions on what a group like this might work like so it, it could be Ask a Muslim it mm -hmm. could be something else so I'm just I'm just trying to get a bunch of people who are interested in participating in this right now who I could stay in touch with it. As, it, as it evolves and say hey you were interested in the Ask idea we have and ask a transgender person thing coming up and we're looking for folks who'd like to participate, would you like to participate? Where would you like them to contact you? At rar at k-u-o-w dot o-r-g. That's my email address and I'll have okay. your email address and I can hold on to it and contact you. Perfect. Then last thing, best place to follow your work online? At k-u-o-w dot o-r-g. Everything I've ever done is there. If you just search for Ross Reynolds, R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S at K-U-O-W You'll see my biography mm -hmm. and you'll see all of the segments that I've done over the years. How about social media? Which one, if you had to choose three? Uh, I'm, Maybe on that's Facebook. A lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook. It's pretty easy to find me on Facebook and it's very easy to find me on Twitter also. And I'm pretty active on both of those. Okay. Ross, thank you so much. This was an awesome interview. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And that was my interview with Ross Reynolds. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access this episode's notes alongside other resources at thevtspodcast.com. Again, that's thevtspodcast.com. Finally, if you enjoyed listening to this interview, the best way to support me on this podcast is by leaving a positive review on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to live a life that moves you.